0: Being a startup founder comes with a big ambition. To conquer your dreams, however, you should learn the best practices for launching your business, fundraising, and hiring talent. Taking advice from founders who have either exited or transformed their startups into unicorns will shorten that learning curve. Andres Bilbao from Rappi, Jaleep Tasman from Jeeves, and Ingrid Barth from Linker showed how to think big from day zero at the Vamos Latam Summit, our Connections and Knowledge flagship event. We'll share right now the chat that they had, moderated by Rosa Jimenez from Jeeves. Andres, Dilip, and Ingrid talked about when founders are really ready to launch their startups and raise money from investors, if founders can actually achieve work-life balance, and how important the first hires are in a startup. Also, what they would change if they could start over as entrepreneurs, and the one piece of advice that Andres, Delip, and Ingrid would each give to startup founders. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam!
1: First thing I would like to ask you is something that I think is going to be super interesting for our audience. When did you feel you were ready to launch? Given the speed you had, when did you start doing something that someone could test or could be public somehow?
2: So thank you so much. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here to tell about uh, this quickly story about Linker and then we are bank account for SMB companies and then everything that we are building and we are trying to help other founders, it's linked to the bank account. So the bank account is the hub of our products. So we just started to offer our services, our products to the clients after the bank account to put money and send money and to send boletos. Boletos is a very specific product in Brazil. It's like an invoice. So you need to have an account to send boletos to the clients and then receive the money. Debit card that we have and the online card that we have is linked to the account. So we started with the bank account, the regular, very basic bank account.
3: Um, so I'm Philippe, I'm the founder and CEO of Jeeves, and it's my first time in Brazil. So it's great to kind of see everybody here. So I, I think the question is interesting. So when I, when we looked at Jeeves or even before Jeeves, I think when you're starting a company, you kind of have to look at like what macro trends you're building on. Because my like personal view is it's better to build something in a larger space, even if it's something small, than something big in a smaller space. Because most times you're going to end up pivoting in some form. And if the space is big enough, you're going to end up with something that has a lot of value. So with Jeeves, the idea was simple, which is, you know, companies are growing international much quicker. Every company by default is some form of global, whether it's paying one employee, one contractor. You start a company in Mexico, you're going to end up in Brazil or Colombia. You start in Brazil, you're going to end up in Mexico, Colombia, and so on, right? So it was a very common thread that we were seeing. And then for us, banking is still specific to a country and a currency. And so that was the central thesis. But then if you're going to build something, one of the core things that I've kind of advised entrepreneurs is like take out all the variables, right? Get to basically a black box, right? Nobody really cares about your product. It's basically what is the value you're providing to the end user. So like if your product is a spreadsheet or like the most complex like AI, it doesn't matter. So get it into like a black box form, provide that to the user. Does the user find value? And then start building from that. So for us, that product was a corporate card. And then now we provide payment rails, we provide uh, working capital loans, we provide 12 months, eventually we'll do deposits. But you have to find that one starting point that has the least amount of variables and then, you know, show that you have some form of product market fit. So that's how it can be looked at it achieves.
4: So I'm Andres from Colombia. For us, at least that rap is kind of like luck. We started off with a different product that was similar to Instacart and we we're about to go bankrupt. So we decided to add a whole bunch of restaurants and then it just blew up. Um, But in in the other area where I have experience, which is starting companies from zero, I typically don't find like a question, when are you ready to launch? It's an individual one for a founder. It's like, are you ready to get married? It's like very personal, right? And then just echoing what you said, typically when I do investments, at like half the time people pivot. So I really like the thinking in terms of the space, and more often than not, I'll give someone some money and go. I really hope you change that business, but here's the money because I'm I'm very like founder driven. Just I just invest in the team because it's super early. That's what I, I would
3: say. I think just one thing to add to that. I completely agree, but like it's for me, it's team and TAM, right? So you get the team and then the market, and that covers yeah. the size. Too, but I just the team. <laughs>
1: I ask because sometimes when you talk to founders, they are a little bit ashamed. It's like, it's not ready yet. I don't want people to see this. Like, I think we need to embrace the dawn is better than perfect. And sometimes it's difficult because of the self-awareness you have about what you do, right? No, but I think it has to do with the fact that you're Argentinian.
4: So <laughs> when you talk to Argentinian founders, they're very product-driven and they want like... It, what I've seen, a whole bunch of products that are really tight. So whenever, whenever I do investments in Argentina, like the product, fucking amazing. If you talk to people in Colombia, they'll sell whatever. It's like just sell it. Eventually, we'll build it. And that's how we build. Talk to anyone here at Rapi, They just sell stuff and then they start building. So yeah, that doesn't apply to Colombians as much. But I, but I do agree that sometimes people are nervous about it. And, and there's a saying, right, in Silicon Valley, that if you if you're proud of your product, you took too long to take it to market. No.
2: Yeah, but the first version of the bank account was terrible. Just to receive money, we <laughs> we didn't send money to everyone. So, uh, but we needed to start. I prefer to start from somewhere that don't.
1: So, uh, but. I was shamed, for sure. Good. Um, Also, to go that fast, you need fuel, right? So busy money is or fuel in startups to go from point A to point B as fast as you can. How is it to raise money when when you are going that fast? And what's the relevant data that you need to show? How do you define your goals and milestones when you are going this fast in order to lure VCs?
3: Um, yeah, I guess like we can talk to this. Um, so I, I think the way to look at capital is it's a resource. right? So when you start, you're trading off capital in time. right? If you're five people building something, you don't have capital, you have a lot of time. right? So you can spend time building out the different components of your company, go get the capital, then start executing from there. The whole point of capital is what is it allowing you to prove, right? If the goal is just to raise capital, it's not going to end up really well. Uh, And I think a lot of times, you know, you don't need to raise capital and you can have a much better outcome because you own a lot more part of the company, right? It's funny. Again, we've raised a lot of money, but like capital is like a mortgage. You're getting basically funding, but it comes with terms. It's not free money, right? So like, you're basically getting it in return for something else. So, Again, we're trying to build a global business bank in 24 countries, we need capital. Like that's core to our business, right? Just not something we can really do without a lot of capital. But that is, doesn't mean you need to have capital for every single thing. And I think as a founder, when you're starting a company, you should really think through, you know, what it is that you are getting for that capital. Like what is the milestones that you can show there? In the beginning stages, C and A, it's really product market fit, right? Because then you can get everything after that. But if you can't show product market fit, then it's very hard to make that jump. And, you know, the thing with product market fit is it's kind of like one of those things where you know it when you see it because it's so obvious that, you know, there's no way kind of around it.
1: You usually use an analogy to say that.
3: <laughs> I used to say product market fit is like porn. You know it when you see it, but I won't say that anymore. I
1: like it. Okay. What about you, Andres?
4: I take fundraising very seriously. Like I take fundraising very, very seriously because now given that we help incubate companies all the time and we've done it like 15 times, like we've done many rounds of fundraising. And I feel that depending on the stage, it can get really hard, but I feel that fundraising is a full-time job. At least at Rappi, we would split the team in four. So two would be front facing, two would be back. We always had like a dark, like a 24 seven room of designers and, even data people, like we took that shit very seriously, and now I think like for for young founders, sometimes they come in in this trade of oh, but I have to operate, or oh should I spend time in fundraising and I would say it's just grow up, you do need to fundraise because you have three jobs right you need to set up the vision, recruit and fundraise. you cannot take one of your like a third of your jobs seriously so Of course, it's not money for the sake of money, 100%. Product market fit, for me, the definition is like when you have something that they snatch out of your hands. It's so obvious that everyone wants it. Um, But as it relates to how do you fundraise when you're growing like crazy, split the team in two, invest heavily on the fundraising side, and take it very seriously like your full-time job. That's how I do it.
1: I think in your case, it was a little different, right, Ingrid? Because yeah. you didn't raise any VC money. And I also like to listen to that because I think it's very unusual, but especially in your case. So you just did angels.
2: Yeah, the, the linker's store is uh, pretty fast. So we uh, started to building three years ago, now four years ago. But when you sold linker, uh, we, um, we had three years of story, so we had just one hound from angels and family offices, and then it's I totally agree, it's a full-time job. And then we needed to have a co-founder very good in the operations, so you can do whatever we need to, <laughs> to do to fundraising uh, in peace. Uh, because it's 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 hard we need to talk with a lot of angels sometimes especially in Brazil, I believe sometimes the angel um they don't understand uh, about your startups at all, so we need to to teach angels sometimes no it's it's there is risk involved but it's okay, we are doing a very good job, show numbers, it's, it's, it's the same type of job, but in, in different ways. So um, we did just one, in fact, we were in, in the beginning of the Series A, when we started to, to talk with Omie, and then we did the exit, so it was the first time that we will talk with VCs to, to raise money
1: from VCs. Good. We'll talk about your exit a little bit later, but I wanted to point out something. Many times when we talk with entrepreneurs and founders, we feel like there's always a celebration when they raise Series A, Series B. But at the same time, when you think about it, you are leaving some part of your company on each of the rounds. So, especially when you see super high valuations, that more pressure. So how do you feel about that? Do you think a mindset change is needed or what I'm seeing is that now there are many more options, your option or some different capital options. How do you feel about it? Is it totally needed to go into VC money or there's other way to help your company?
3: Oh, like,
4: I would argue that we suck because we need VC money, right? Like, I wish I was like Sergio. You ever seen Sergio? is right here. I bet people have no idea. Like the dude built the thing by himself. He just went for VC money when he wanted to exit to IPO. Like all of us here, like we suck, comparatively speaking. So I, I sometimes come across founders who have a phenomenal business. And I wonder like, why do you want to raise? It's like a, like a beauty contest. I think that to the extent that you don't, like I wouldn't. Then there's also the piece of control. Sometimes in Latin America, a lot of us haven't learned this, but it needs like two or or three of your friends to be like elbowed out of their company for you to learn that you actually sold your company, right? So I I think there's two pieces that I wouldn't raise unless I needed to. And then you also want to have control. Like the thing that I would recommend young founders here is just talk to a few folks who have a little bit of gray hair. Ask them about control. Because in your first company, you just want for the thing to like succeed, you don't care how you incorporate it, you don't care how much you sold, you, you don't care anything at all. On the second one, you're like a little bit more. Or on the third one, you just want control. That's all you want, right? So I strongly advise for you guys to, to talk there. And the question of should I race or not race for me is like I'm a little bit more gray hair. It's more a matter of control for me.
3: Yeah, no, I I definitely agree. And I think uh, one of the things people don't do often uh, is also just making sure you have the right kind of investors. And again, I'm a second time founder, completely echo, you know, what you just said, which is when you do it the second time, you realize how much control you gave up the first time. Uh, And also, you know, all investors are not the same, right? And so a lot of times people don't realize like investors are going to be with your company for five years, seven years, 10 years. I mean, that's longer than a lot of marriages, right? And like, how much time do you take to figure out your life partner? Are you doing the same with like an investor? Probably not as much, but like the answer is somewhere in between. And it makes a big difference, especially in the early stages, because those investors tend to stay with you a lot longer. So I completely agree. It's funny for Jeeves compared to my last company, every round, the biggest driver for me was like, what was the level of control, both in terms of dilution, but also in terms of like the board setup and, you know, all of those things, which you don't think about the first time. So I, this is, really good advice. Talk to someone that's at least done it once uh, and you'll get a very different perspective from doing it the first time. And you're like, oh, wow, someone's giving me $10 million. It's like, yes, but you're also going to be giving up a lot in return for that.
4: They won't listen. They never listen. I say this shit every single time to every founder. They come back like two years later. You'll see.
1: <laughs> Let's see where he goes.
0: Hey there. Are you learning some good lessons in this episode? I hope so. The founders and angel investors we have on our fellowship programs learn things like this throughout the entire experience. In the Explore Fellowship, we help you kick off your next big idea. With the Angel Fellowship, you can expand your impact as a startup investor. Be sure to check out Latitude.com to find out how to apply for our fellowship programs. Now let's get back to the episode. Thanks a lot.
1: So an important question also is how do you handle your life in a, in a way? Because people talk a lot about work-life balance. I'm not sure if that exists. I think it's more being comfortable with what you do. But being a founder is different from being an operator somehow, right? So I know Dilip is a dad. Ingrid is also a mom, recent mom. And, uh, and we all have personal life. So how do you handle that stress? How do you organize yourselves in order to be successful without sacrificing that much of your life?
2: I don't know what is it. <laughs>
1: no, it's a joke. So
2: uh, I, I really don't believe in work balance, in fact, because sometimes you need to put your energy in this piece of our life. Sometimes you need to change your focus to another piece of our life. Now I'm trying to build in my family. So I'm pregnant again. I have a baby for 10 months. And then I just started to build in my family just because of the exit. Because now I can think a little bit more about that. So, And there is no problem because the balance will be in the end. So we put some energy here and here and here and the balance, it's it's okay. So for me... It's very cruel to say about that to founders. Oh, I need you to have a balance, work-life balance. It's very cruel for me because it's not possible to have everything in line every time. And then it, it can transform the life in very pain life. So I believe we need you to put energy, whatever we want. And then after that, we can build something different, not building family or friends, something like this. But I have friends, for example, that normally say to me, "Oh my God, you never uh, went to my birth- birthday party." Yeah, I was working. <laughs> it's life. But I am friend. I really good friend. So uh, it's my opinion about that. So every time that I I I heard about uh, work balance. Uh, life. Yeah, I didn't agree with this statement.
3: Um, I kind of e- echo that. I-, I look at work life as stages of your life, right? So, you know, when you're building a company, especially when you're starting it, you're the one that cares the most of the company, right? So it's up to you. You want to work, work. If you don't want to work, don't work. But you set the pace either way, right? So one of the things I ask people that I interview, especially if they're joining the executive team, is, you know, like, are you ready to get back into the fire? And it's fine if you're not. Like, I don't know if I want to start another company after GUs and I probably need some time off and that's fine, right? But like, when someone's coming in, especially this stage of the company, especially if it's growing quickly, like every day is a little bit of a fire and like you need that energy to be able to do that. And I see it more as like, you know, arcs of life, right? There are stages in your life where you're ready to work very hard and there are stages when I'm not. And like, that just depends on me. That's personal to me. And I'm sure it should be for everybody here. But I also think if it's your company, and you don't set that tone a little bit, then it just starts dribbling down. And like, I have heard people with great work-life balance. I'm probably not one of them. Uh, but I also like really look at it as like, what stage are you in your personal journey? And especially the first like two, three years of a company, it's like a baby, like you need to give it full attention or it will probably not make it, right? And like, it's, that's your call, right? And then you should be ready for that energy that it sucks out of you. <laughs> You know, like every day and sometimes you're not there and that's fine. And maybe you should take some time off and come back and build it. And so, I again, this is one of the most critical questions I ask people I hire, especially if they're joining the executive team, which is, you know, if you're coming from another adventure at a startup that's very high growth, like, do you want to do this again? Because it is going to be draining. It is going to take energy out of you. And like, that's a personal decision, you know, that you need to make before you join another company like that. So I I don't know. I see it in that like perspective. Um, It's
2: an
4: option, right? Yeah, I really like the view on stages of life. In the earlier stages of life, I remember people, I would do a lot of interviews Saturday. Because if you did an interview Saturday, the fuck is going to hire you? (laughs) And then the other reason, like I remember once this is one guy that came up to me and said, so how do you feel about work-life balance? We were working really hard. I had this gut reaction. It's like, what work-life balance? It's life and it's rapid. Like, are you in or not? And that's exactly how we did it. Later on, it changes and you start getting chill. And it depends on the company, right? Like now that I do investing, dude, I'm supposed to be healthy, work out, make right decisions. You know what I mean? So it's like a very different mindset. But the other thing that I would tell young founders is that like you're the founder, you set up your schedule. Like there's nothing easier than setting up your schedule as a founder. If people are pulling you in a bunch of directions, that's your choice. I, for instance, I suck at email. That's my choice. Twenty twelve, I had a manager at Google. He expected me to answer a shit ton of email and like follow the conversations that developers had on email. It's like I'm not gonna do that. And in twenty twelve, I stopped following email because it's someone else prioritizing your time. That makes life really hard for wonderful people that try and organize events like this and because they need to, call me. But I prioritize my time. And you can do the same because it's your little kingdom. It's your company. So there's no such thing as work-life balance in my view. But if you're a founder, just arrange your shit. That's what I do.
1: Good. Um, I wanted to ask you something you have been slightly pointed. Is this key hires at the beginning? Because... I suppose that growing this fast when you're looking for a specific profile is going to be like expiring very quick as the company evolves, right? So how do you hire and how do you see the evolution of that people at that very early stage that became like later stage very quickly?
4: I think that's the single most important thing to me. The talent. And everyone says people, people, people. But... There's nothing more important than your hires. And young founders also don't, sometimes don't realize it, but like a massive company like Jeeves or like it's growing Like Crazy, it's like five hires. It's like the salesperson, the product person, the engineering person, the CEO, and maybe an ops person. And pff, five years, you have a unicorn. But you got to make sure that each of these people are able to build their own organization. If you hire a whole bunch of junior people, and I, and I don't mean junior in terms of years I mean junior in terms of the ability to build a business, so I only just i only only um hire when we're doing for the top company or the top roles people who can build an organization and then sometimes you get really lucky and you find some folks that are able to grow into roles and that grow up like really quickly and those ones do. They either work for me for a decade, or I invest in them with my eyes closed. I know ten; I'm invested in a ten, and one works for me and is leaving, so I'm investing.
3: Just a thought on that, kind of echoing that. Um, our first executive hire, C level hire, was actually the chief people officer, and it was such expansion of my skill set, right? And because that for me, especially for the type of organization we're building, like you need someone that has done this before, someone that's very good. We, you know, had to convince her to join us, but it, it's, it depends on the company. It depends on what you value. But as you get bigger, it becomes just more and more about who you're hiring, right? And so when we started Jeeves, one of the decisions that I made was we want to have exceptional people, talent. Like we want that org to be like a center of excellence for the company, And so we invested in that. And like this was different from my last company. And my last company had 40 or 50 people. Jeeves, the scale is just very different. So we knew just to get to what we're trying to build to, the people component has to come very quickly. And it is absolutely critical to the company. And so just echoing what he's saying, you know, if you don't have the right people in there, you're not going to make it. And I don't know if you're going to get it 100% correct. But I do think the goal for me, at least, is to get 60, 70% of that to be like real like a++ players i call it kind of centers of excellence where they can sustain the org by themselves and i don't have to be the one like generating that energy to kind of keep it going and then the second part here and i'm very curious kind of to hear you know your thoughts on this a little bit as well is i've noticed as the company gets bigger the skill set of that same person changes because in the beginning it's really that generation of like making sure you can grow but now it's really a little bit of running an organization and a lot of times you don't have people that can do both. And then you kind of have to like, you know, jump up a level or find the right person, etc. And so we're going through that a little bit right now. A you do,
4: what you need to do, man, is just hire people that you can have different skill set. You cannot lose the pushing. Yeah. Like people push, 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 push. I used, to, I used to drill every executive. It's like, what's your job? And they start describing, uh-uh, your job is to push. If someone says, if someone gives you like, I don't know, we grew 10%. It's like, where's my 12th? Or I opened that country, like just the one and you're just pushing and it's an automatic um, response. So I'd like I, you can change the scale, you can never change. My friend Guerrero used to put it like, you could, should never hire people that lose the ability to get upset over shit that's wrong. Like if you have an executive that sees something that's wrong and it's not a, that he or she doesn't get upset, that's
3: not a good hire. Just on that point, like if you're a startup, right, things will go wrong, and like we have one of our values is like chaos is our opportunity. Like the whole point for it here is because there's an arbitrage between like legacy institutions and what you can do, and so speed and that ability to build in that gray area is your biggest strength. So like, yeah, if you have an executive that's not okay when things go wrong, that's not a great sign because it's always going to be some form of that.
2: I really hate the micromanagement, so. Since the first beginning of the, the linker, we hired very senior people. So for example, nowadays, we don't have interns, not because we don't want to have, but we believe that you need to keep a small group, but very senior and very professional group and then self-management itself. So for example, for us, it's very, very important to management yourself, your job, Um, I hate, I don't want to be the person that will do the micromanagement to check everything. So they need to work alone and well, for sure.
0: Hey there, you might be thinking about how hard it is to build a venture-backed company. Well, I know firsthand and I made some mistakes along the way. We lost over $100 million in capital gains taxes because of the company formation mistake that I made. I don't want that to happen to you. That's why we built Latitude Go. We provide an optimal offshore structure for your startup and we do it in record time. And guess what? It's five times less expensive as other options and we use the same legal documents as the top tier law firms. To find out more, check out latitude.com forward slash go. Now, let's get back to the episode.
1: There are several questions from the audience and there's one I really like. Some other are like Repetitions of what we already wanted to ask, but is if you had to start over, what would you change when you look back? It's not a regret, but it's more like if I started now the same business, I would have done this differently because now I have this knowledge or I learned this. So, what would you have done different if you started again?
4: I've thought about this a lot. Oh, the first thing that I would have done very differently is the company incorporation. I'd say, for instance, when we started Rappi, we gave away 50% of the business on the first round. We didn't know what we were doing. So we were like, <laughs> we're putting in software, you put some cash, let's do 50-50, let's go. And that's how we, we said we were just mega ignorant. So that's, but in addition to how we did that, there's ways of incorporating the company that can enable you a lot more control. So that's the first one. The second thing that um, in the specific case of Rapi, I would have invested a lot more heavily on the operations early on. We have a very strong, everyone at Rappi has a very strong growth mindset to a fault. So we need to invest a little bit more on the capability building and all this stuff we kind of figure out, but we would figure it out year three, year four, and we should have done it like year one. So a lot more heavy on the operations. And there was this one period in my life, in the like in the third, between the third and fourth year, that I decided, ah, let's cut costs and let's not focus on anything different than figuring it out with the people that we have. And I didn't do any serious recruiting for like a year. That was my biggest fuck up by far. Because it's like a full year of not attracting top talent. I mean, me, Rapi was doing it, but I was not doing it. So. That's like my my top three. ah, and there's one that people hate, and I probably wouldn't have been able to get away with it, but for the specific case of rapi we should not rest Saturday and Sunday. You should rest Monday and Tuesday, because it's ridiculous that you're doing a business where your top sales are Sunday and your second top sales are Saturday, and your user when your users need you the most, you're like not there. So. And I try and do that like in the second year, but I couldn't get away with that. It's really hard. Um, Because like if you're really operating for your users, you optimize for users. That's what I would have done differently.
3: I think for us, it was definitely more on like the technology side. So a core part of what we're trying to build is the payment infrastructure layer. And, you know, when you start, uh, a lot of that is built for a certain scale. And this is like a constant dilemma that you're going to have, which is when do you move to a, a system that can support a larger scale? And you're always going to have costs and trade off because you're going to lose some churn of customers, but you kind of have to do it. The longer you put it off, the more painful it is, but the longer you put it off, you don't have to deal with it right now. So for us, that was something that we had to do earlier this year. Uh, and again, like, I'm very thankful we got a really good CTO in that could do this but it was something we probably should have done last year. And so we paid the price for that in terms of just you know, the scale that we were seeing, but we we're growing very, very quickly month over month. And when you're growing that quickly, that becomes like this you know like golden goose number that like takes over like your mindset. And a lot of times you kind of need to step back as a CEO, as a founder, your job is to balance the different numbers, not just have that one number that everybody kind of like aligns around. That's their job. Your job is to know that number but also the number after that. And again, I keep coming back to this. It goes back to the people like you need good people that can also help balance that point of view and push you to be like, that's awesome. But what about this? And what about 12 months from now when, you know, we're going to be doing whatever hundred X like can we support that with our existing system. So again, I, I don't know if we could have done it in real time, but that, you know, definitely led to some pains, you know, earlier this year and we did a full migration and that was something we probably should have done last year.
2: Um, There is a special point that I want to say that we started the fundraising in the seed round. And I really believe that if you have a stage, we need to follow these stages. And then we didn't do the angel round because I am from the financial market. So my co-founder also, we thought about that. We need to check some types of risks Avoid some types of risks from for the, the investors. So we started to get money. I believe uh, in the second piece of these stages, and I really believe that angel piece is very important. To building this angel ecosystem is very important, not only for the money, but for the the smart money to to show to other investors that. I have someone that invests in me, believe in me. So if I started again, I believe we need to do the angel piece of investment, for example, fundraising.
4: That's a really important point. Like, I, I don't know if you guys have exposure to it, but Latitude has the, um, the angel cohort. It's really good. Like I've been doing, I have like 60 investments and I went there learned a whole bunch of stuff. And there's a whole bunch of people that are looking to learn from one another. And I think that's very, very true. Now, like an investment strategy, Angel, it's not probably all that like, great. And it's a really easy way to lose money. But as a means to drive an ecosystem, it's really important. And I think that that program in particular is one of those golden gems out of all the different, or not golden gems, like hidden gems out of all the different things that latitude is doing like quite well. I'd like to really like that one. And fostering the angel ecosystem is something that I spend a lot of time on as well. And I hope that you guys get a bunch of money. I'm broke, so don't ask. But in, with that exception, um, and just for like the next six months afterwards, you can nag me. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's a very, very important. And it's great that... because It's investor, not only
1: about
2: money. Yeah, it's
4: not just about the money.
1: Talking Ingrid about smart money, which is something we hear a lot and is something repeated. Like no, but I'm giving smart money. How do you define that? And you have to pick which could be your ideal investor, like the one that rolls their sleeves, the one that gives you the money and disappears, the one that is an expert on this specific field. So I know it's going to help me with hiring or with some specific areas in which I need help. How? How do you see different checks in order to see that it's smart money or not? Which would be your ideal investor?
4: I have one example. I have this one company I recently invested in. Now it's called Fidu, used to be called Blended. It's kind of like an ISAC, right? The lens to, to schools. And these guys, I like to think I'm smart money because they didn't know how to do very strong sales. And at Rappi, we like super strong at sales. So we got them two advisors, the KPIs. We discussed all the goals. And we essentially, within a month, set up an organization and set up a capability way above what they would typically have when they figure out. So that's really smart. In, for us at Rappi, we had Sarup from DST. And whenever we needed to fix something like really heavy, he would micromanage us. VC micro, no? Like every couple of weeks we'd meet. Or every week, and it was super smart money because he was literally, you tell us what to do, and we just do it, and it worked, you know. So, for me, smart money is basically people that are have foresight it's literally, foresight not even reasoning powers, foresight like they've done it, they know it, they know the model, they know who to connect you with, and they save you months, months, and literally millions of dollars telling you what to do. That for me is smart money. I
3: have two thoughts on this. So, one. I think when you construct your cap table, there's a little bit of kind of art and science. So the way I think through it and different founders have different opinions on this is I like having um, people from different backgrounds that are invested in the success of Jeeves. And I really try to set up the next round in the last round. So it's got an investor for whom this round is a small check, but like they're eyeing the next round and now they're invested. And now, you know, the biggest thing investors look for as your company grows is you say something and you do something what you said. And so when they come in the previous round and they're like, this is exactly what Jeeves said they were going to do. And they're grand through all their numbers, like, let's do this next round, right? And so for me personally, I'm a big fan of like combination party rounds, especially in the beginning, because the more people that are invested in the success of Jeeves is a good thing for me. Yes, I need to go chase signatures for one cycle, two cycles, and then it gets better. You don't do that in the, you know, B in the C, but that's my personal philosophy, which is like, I like people invested in the success of the company. I like investing with a view for the next round. So when I construct the last round's cap table, there are already people in there that are like my perspective of like, they can do the next round. So that's how I look at it. And then just to your point, like for me, the people that have been the most helpful, not really correlated to check size. (laughs) Like it's, it's weird. You'll get people that do 5K checks, 15K checks, 500K checks, and they've been way more helpful than like 20 million checks that we've got. And that tends to be a distinction of like, for that person, is this an investment that, I don't know, has some value to them, has an output for them, is an area that they're like specialized in. And I, it's very hard sometimes when you like fill the capital with people that you think are going to be helpful. And then it tends to be not that person. It tends to be completely someone else. And I have maybe four or five investors that I text on a weekly basis. And I, you know, no correlation really to the tech size that they put in versus like leading around or not leading around. But that's just my perspective. I think different founders look at it differently.
2: Yeah, I believe the best angel will be the one that uh, open the right door for you when you need. And then I really believe in diversity in this pool of angels. Not only uh, diversity for gender, but backgrounds, type of industry. So, for example, I am from the financial market. It's normally to link it with people from the financial market. But I believe when you are building a complex company. We needed to talk about HR, we needed to talk about technology, we needed to talk about a lot of other topics, it's not only for financial market, not, not only for financial. And then I really believe that this type of diversity can bring a lot of good things. And then to open for sure the right doors, to uh, present to you the right people, to a VC, for example, for the next round. And then I really believe that the best angel will be the one that responds to you when you need. So not only to send you the the reports each three months, for example, no, but we need something. We send it to them that we need something and they respond to you. I can help you.
1: This is the best one. There's a question from the audience that I really like. And it's, when has thinking big hurt your business? Never. I think that, um, well, you got my gut reaction.
4: I don't think there's ever a time where thinking big hurts your business. Like, I'm sure that if you go and follow like, or following shiny things or something like that, you can lose focus. But from the last few years working with entrepreneurs, the, like, the one common denominator of the really successful ones is ambition. And ambition is thinking big. So if you think really big, like let's like, say if you aim for Mars, at least you will leave the stratosphere. Another tactical example, like at Rapi, the first two years, we never hit a third of our goals. Never. And we were like and, and we were like the fastest growing ever in like, or or at least in, in a couple of the countries. So I don't think there's there's something wrong about thinking too big in the entrepreneurial mindset. We're in the entrepreneurial context.
3: Um, so I, I think this for me, at least, there's two parts, right? There's the ambition. And I completely agree. Like if you're starting a company, if it's a small idea or a big idea, you're going to be working pretty hard. You're putting in 20-hour days. So you might as well go with the big idea because again, it just gives you more room to land on something that hopefully is, you know, satisfying intrinsically, extrinsically, et cetera. So like the ambition part is it has to be there. That's what keeps you going when it's dark and, you know, like you have every, every entrepreneur has days when you don't want to do it and you still have to come back to like, why did you start this in the first place? What is it about this that inspires you personally to wake up? And it's not always, you know, the outcome or the money, those things lose their shine after a while. It's like, what is the the, the, the part here that really connects with who you are? And for me that comes back to like this form of like ambition, like what do you want to change? Right. So that I don't think, you should remove in terms of thinking big. I think where it can hurt you is tactically, which is if you don't prioritize and you're like, okay, we're thinking big and we're going to be doing, you know, like I'll give Jeeves examples. We're in 24 countries. What if we were in 48 countries, right? Like, are we going to be doing as well in the 20 countries that we operate in, right? And so that's where I think a big part of your job as an entrepreneur is prioritization. Like every stage of the company, there's one function that you have to be really good at, right? In the beginning, it might be product. Then it might be marketing. Then it might be something else. That's how I look at it. It's like, what is your core function at this stage of your company that you as a CEO need to have your pulse on? And that changes as the company grows. So in the beginning, we didn't have marketing in-house. It was an agency. It just wasn't critical to our success. It was just product. We had to build this product. We had to build this layer. That was all we were investing resources in. And then that changed as the company moved. So for me, that's the only place that I see where thinking big can kind of hurt you, which is, do you prioritize correctly, you know, what you need to do to get that product market fit and that success.
2: I really believe on the, we needed to think big and ambitious, for example, but I I really uh, believe that we needed to focus on the problem. wanted to solve this problem. You know, we validated that this, all the people have this problem. So I believe that... um, we have the combination of ambition and love the problem
1: is the best way to, to, to think big. So we would say, like, ambition plus planning or prioritizing, right? Never lose that. There's also a question that uh, some people sent and they voted is, and I think it's related to ambition, but they're asking it the other way around. And they say, should Latin founders go or think global from day zero?
4: I don't think so. I think that on average in Latin America, we kind of suck at thinking global. I think that's changing a little bit now with crypto, which I think is really, really cool. And it depends on the regions. So let's say for instance, in Argentina, you see some companies that are quite global. There's some in every country, but my experience have been that we always start thinking Latam. And sometimes you look at the product and go like, why? You know, it's like it could be more. So I think that like the one thing that I would improve in our ecosystem and personally and to some of the other folks is to start believing that you can pull off businesses that are global and not just regional. And some folks have done like a really good job, like the gym pass or or some of of, um, like off zero guys and, and several others. So, yeah, I, think, I don't think we think as global as we could. And that's what, the one thing that I would change in Latin American mindset.
1: I'm going to rephrase, with permission of the author, this phrase uh, or this uh, question. They say, what is the Brazilian big issue? I would say the biggest challenge uh, Brazil has as in, from a founder point of view. Which were your biggest challenges? Well, <laughs> our
2: focus in Linker, it's the financial piece of SMB companies. So this is a big issue. We need to open the financial market for smaller companies. Uh, But as founder, I believe that we have a lack of technology people. Then, uh, especially in Linker, we need people um, that they need to, to know about financial piece. And then, banks, they have a lot of money to hire these people and then we compete with these guys. So for us it's very difficult to to hire people uh, with the right salary, with the right skills and then compete with banks, for example, big banks especially.
4: I think that I may get in trouble for this one, but I think that Brazil, Brazil is like two countries, right? Is this one country that has this massive economy with exceptional entrepreneurs, with a shift in of innovation, with a central bank that does bigs, and it's the same country, but this other country has a lot more entitlement, like a lot more correction. You see it in the demandas, um, like in the, in the lawsuits like like I'll give you a story in, in, um, in Colombia, in Colombia, for instance, people work really hard. They have a saying that says, God favors those who wake up early. So we have 7 a.m. meetings at times, right? You, and you would get interns, as opposed to you guys. Like we built RAPI with interns, teach, just that the people didn't know they were interns. And here, when you would get interns, I remember there was two interns. They basically were trying to leverage us. They threatened to sue like two interns threatened to sue for extra time for like three months of work. And I, for the life, like I could not understand this does not happen in Peru. It does not it doesn't happen anywhere except here. And I see that there's this kind of like very strong entitlement in, in the society at times. And you see it in the, in the legislature. So that's the one. And I'm not against in any way protecting workers and, I'm not against it anyway, and, and I think there should be a whole lot about that. But when it comes to the mindset, that, that second country, like I've never seen anything like that. Even in Argentina, you don't see that.
1: Good. So, Ingrid, um, we're talking about going fast, and in three years, you sold your company, right? So how did you make that decision,
2: in fact, we like it so much, Omie, because we have the same proposal. So, for example, Omie is a management software for SMB companies. And we are a bank account for SMB companies. So, uh, businesses are very linked to each other. And then, Marcelo Lombardo is the CEO. He's an amazing guy. We've fallen in love <laughs> with him. And then, it's not an easy decision. I was pregnant, eight months pregnant, due diligence, a lot of things to do, the operation. And then um, we look at each other, the founders, the co-founders, and is the right time? Yeah, it's the right time? Okay, let's, let's do it together. And then I believe that together we can go faster, uh, together with Omie. So is this the decision, simple, simple as that.
1: Okay. Maybe going back to the beginning of this panel, you didn't have VCs also, so you had to go and talk and make the decision with the initial angels and like family offices that backed you. So I guess that if you had raised Series A, Series B, it would have been a very different conversation, For right?
2: For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, the idea was okay, we are a regular bank account. We need to build in something uh, to complete our product portfolio. So management system is something that we need to build in. So we have now uh, a management system together with FOMIA. So it's very strategic for us also.
1: So I wanna rephrase this question for both cases. How do you vision the future of your company? Because there's always like the pressure of IPO or go and sell it. But I guess there are many options right now and it's not that easy and it's not that like zero or one, right? So how do you vision like next phases?
3: Um, I mean, I think with this you know market that we're in, which I think is a good thing because it forces survival, right? So you kind of have to build a business that is going to survive or it's not going to survive. So for us specifically at Jeeves, you know, we are in a pretty good position on the cash side. But like really what we've been focusing on is like how do we build this to a point where if we do look at the public markets, it's rock solid, right? Like we don't want to go to the public markets until you're basically being asked to go to the markets, not someone's, you know, you're going and asking to get there. So for us, you know, that's the focus, which is the next two, three, four years really focusing on getting kind of the unit economics tighter, getting to, you know, 100 million, 200 million, 300 million revenue, and then taking a look at what the market is. Good companies will always have options. And that's something, you know, like I've talked to many founders, some that have gone public, and it's always been the same kind of phrase from them, which is like, you build it to go public, then you make the decision if you want to go public, not the other way around. So that's how we look at it internally, which is we have our metrics, our milestones that we're trying to hit. Uh, But the goal would be we want to be self-sustaining and then make a decision once we are absolutely kind of certain and ready versus feeling like we need to get there. And then flip side, you look at a company like Figma. I mean, that's a great outcome. They didn't go public, right? So it's not like you have to go public to kind of get to that outcome point. And then this is where, for me, it goes back to like, why are you starting this company? You know, like what is about Jeeves that's special and unique to you? Like, is this your, like, I call it like your legacy company, like what you want to, you know, potentially leave behind? And that also changes why, why you go public or don't go public and so on. So there's a lot that kind of feeds into it from our perspective.
4: Well, my end, I don't think Rappi has very much of an alternative, but to go public and um, look to build the business towards the future. There's a graph that uh, the guys of NFX produced. They, they do a really good job with content and they showed how much value was created by companies after they went public. And I know that's how Simone thinks about Rappi. I know that Felipe like, doesn't have anything better to do with his time. Like, there's no thought of ever selling. There was never thought of it. There's this one time that we should have gone bankrupt. Like, no one wanted to give us money and someone was going to give us $400 million. And we turned that into a $100 million check to keep doing it as opposed to selling. So there's no selling at Rappi. I'm pretty sure, um, and it's now. And now it's a matter of building this base or taking advantage of this base and building on top of it. And hopefully, it'll go public one day. But I...
1: Good. So before we leave, I would like to ask you to give a final message to our audience and um, piece of advice somehow.
2: Don't believe in life work balance, <laughs> especially if you are a founder. I believe that we have time to do everything that we want in life. So don't freaking out on that and do your job. And it's a very nice journey. So keep doing it. I, believe, I really believe on that.
3: Thinking about doing something, I, I really like this concept of like Windows, right? A lot of times when you're starting a company, your biggest advantage is your speed. And Windows, you know, people think that they're always open. And they're not always open. So what happens is you are like, I have this thing I want to build. You keep building it. And the window itself has changed. And you see this in every market, right? So what I would kind of encourage folks to do is like, if it's something you're passionate about and like really passionate, the hard part is like a lot of times there are ideas, but like you need to find that thing that you want to build, even if you don't get funded, even if no one else wants to do it, it's just something you wake up and you're excited to do because that's what will keep you going. And then I would encourage people to do it as soon as possible because that window itself is going to change. And like if you take two years, you're now building for a window that was two years ago. Now there's a new window and someone else is building at that window. So for me, that's how I kind of look at things. It's this concept of like a ticking clock and a window and you know finding that middle ground where you want to do something, even if no one else wants to do it, even if you can't get funding, does you like waking up in the morning, do you have that bill to like go do this yourself? Because guess what? Even after the funding, you're going to be the one that has to do that and keep the company going with that energy so you better have that day one so that's how i kind of look at it
4: cool and for me the best founders i know are like three-year-old kids or four that they ask and ask and ask and ask and ask so if i would strongly encourage you guys to and ladies to find the top people that you can come across and ask them stuff all day i like got best founders that i know are all exceptional learners and that's what I'd strongly suggest.
1: So thank you. Thank you, Ingrid, Philippe, Andres. And keep calm. And vamos, Latam.
0: Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Andres Bilbao, Talib Tasman, and Ingrid Barth, based on their chat during the Vamos Latam Summit. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders like them. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you in the next episode.